0: Hannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Solohogo and Tami Kruza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Police in Rwanda arrest four people for threatening state security and Zimbabwe's MDC party plans anti-government protests. In economics, Zimbabwe's wireless network operator Econet seeks a local partner and in sports news, Ugandan boxers set to return to the big stage. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa.
1: Good morning. Suspected Islamist insurgents have abducted more than 100 female students in a night raid on a government secondary school in Nigeria's northeast Borno state. The attack comes after a blast killed more than 70 people in Abuja on Monday. The gunman is believed to be members of the Boko Haram Islamist group, which has attacked schools in the northeast before as part of the anti-government rebellion. Boko Haram militants are increasingly targeting civilians they accuse of collaborating with the army. Jordan's ambassador to Libya has been kidnapped by gunmen in Tripoli. His convoy was attacked by a group of masked men on board two civilian cars. The incident was the latest targeting Libyan leaders and foreign diplomats. The abduction came two days after Libya's Prime Minister Abdullah Al-Tani stepped down, saying he and his family had been the victims of an armed attack. al quote quit less than a week after parliament tasked him with forming a new cabinet. A court in Egypt has banned members of the Muslim Brotherhood movement from running in the upcoming elections. A court in the Mediterranean city of Alexandria ordered Egyptian officials to bar any candidacy by members or former members of the movement in presidential and parliamentary elections. In December last year, the Muslim Brotherhood was blacklisted by the country's military-installed government. Egypt is set to hold a presidential election on the 26th and 27th of next month which is to be followed by parliamentary polls. Algeria's President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has urged Algerians to defy boycott calls and vote in tomorrow's election. His rival Ali Benflis says an army of supporters would monitor the poll and warned against fraud. Benflis is considered Bouteflika's main rival and has repeatedly warned of fraud during the election campaign. Meanwhile, Amnesty International has accused the Algerian authorities of silencing critics and stepping up curbs on freedom of expression in the run-up to the election. Reporters without borders also criticized the authorities for restricting the freedom of journalists to report on the election. Airlifts of tents and the construction of new camps are currently underway to help South Sudanese refugees in Ethiopia. More than 95,000 South Sudanese refugees are now in Ethiopia since the conflict erupted last December. And up to 1,000 are still arriving every day. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says refugees arrive on the last legs, malnourished and needing emergency attention. Spokesperson Melissa Fleming highlighted the gravity of the situation. We're taking money out of our reserves to fly in tents, to establish camps, to make sure the infrastructure is there so that they can be properly treated. I was there a couple of weeks ago. I have to say it was pretty shocking. And what I realized when we were standing there is if UNHCR wasn't there, WFP and some of our NGO partners, these people would be dead. And finally, independent forensic expert Roger Dixon will continue giving his evidence-in-chief in chief when the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius resumes in the North Gauteng High Court in the capital, Pretoria. He is the defense's third witness out of an expected 17 witnesses. Advocate Barry Roux is leading his evidence. Jacques Steenkamp reports.
2: Dixon yesterday testified about several objects that were found on the crime scene where River Steenkamp was shot and killed. These included the toilet door, the cricket bat, and a bullet core that was found inside the bloody toilet bowl. Dixon also testified about how he tested the light conditions inside the athlete's bedroom and about a sound test he conducted using a cricket bat on the door. It's expected that he will testify today about the sound a pistol made and compare this to the sound of a cricket bat. It is, however, still unknown whether Dixon will also testify about Pistorius' alleged high-pitched screams that could make him sound like a woman.
1: And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time.
3: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorka. Africa, amuka na
4: unai.
0: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Today, Wednesday the 16th of April, the 106th day of 2014, and there are exactly 259 days left in the year. Our top story, police in Rwanda have arrested four people on suspicion of involvement in subversive activities. The trio, who include a popular musician, a journalist and a demobilized soldier, were arrested at different intervals and are suspected of having links to the terrorist group known as the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, FDLR, operating in the east of the neighbouring Democratic Republic of Congo. The Rwanda Media Commission, which is Rwanda's media regulatory body, condemned the arrest of the journalist. Sylvanas Karamera reports from Kigali.
5: A week before the arrest of journalist Kasyenha Hamhanga, media reports had indicated that he had gone missing on the night of April the 7th, with the police confirming they were investigating circumstances behind his alleged disappearance. Now, police have confirmed that they have him in custody alongside popular gospel musician Kizito Mihigo and ex-soldier Jampo Dukuzumuremi as well as a lady Wanu Agnes Nibizi. The four are suspected of plotting terrorist activities against Rwanda through the collaboration of the infamous FDRR terrorist group operating in Eastern DRC and the Rwanda National Congress, RNC, an organization made up of Rwanda dissidents opposing the Rwandan government living outside the country. The director of Rwanda's criminal investigation department, Teosibadeje, confirmed the arrest in a press briefing in Kigali.
6: These
5: suspects are believed to have joined terrorist organizations that have been targeting Rwanda. They were assigned different responsibilities, which had a common objective of destabilizing national security. The police who paraded the suspects before the media also displayed some of the evidence collected, which included hand grenades. The CID boss further explained the gravity of the offences, revealed that the activities of the suspected have also been linked to plans of assassinating senior Rwandan government officials on grounds of revenge. We believe their intentions as they said, was to avenge the death of a Rwandan exile Patrick Hargea in collaboration with FDLR and the RNC. There were announcements here and there that were easily confirming their collaborations. A Rwanda media commission, the country's media regulatory body, has condemned the arrest of Kasen Hamuhanga, who was a journalist, with a gospel radio station here known as Amazing Grace. In his statement, Fred Muvunyi, the commission's chairman, said Hamuhanga's rights must be respected. When a journalist is arrested, the security organs have to inform us. But this does not mean that he should not be investigated for any other crimes not related to violation of media regulations. But we are not informed, and that is why we are worried that he may not be allowed a state attorney, or his family may be restricted from seeing him. Which is why we ask that he is accorded the rights he is entitled
6: to.
5: The case files will now be submitted to prosecution. However, police investigations continue to arrest other members of the network, alleged to still be at large. Silvanus Kremera, Channel Africa News, Kigali.
3: Africa rise and shine.
7: Africa zora.
6: Africa Amika, na unahere.
0: Refugees from South Sudan continue to arrive in the remote Ethiopian Gambela region at a rate of up to 1,000 people per day, according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. The agency says many of the refugees are from the Upper Nile, where fighting broke out in December last year, between forces loyal to President Salva Kiir and former Deputy President Riek Machar. UNHCR is concerned about the approaching rainy season and it's working with its partners to relocate the South Sudanese refugees to higher grounds. To find out more about the situation, UN Radio's Derek Mbata spoke with UNHCR spokesperson Louis Fernando Godinho, who is currently in Gambela Town.
8: We have already passed the mark of 95,000 South Sudanese refugees that arrived here in Ethiopia since the beginning of the conflict in South Sudan last December.
9: And give me the profile of the refugees who are arriving in Ethiopia.
8: The majority of them are women and children, around 95%, because According to reports of the same refugees arriving here, a lot of the men have been forcibly recruited, while others have been killed during the conflict. So we are receiving here in Ethiopia a vast majority of women and children.
9: Now, what reason or reasons are they giving for leaving South Sudan to Ethiopia?
8: Well, they came mostly from the Upper Nile State, and also the Jungle State, and some as well for the Unit State. But uh, Upper Nilo and Jungle State are those that have borders with Ethiopia. So came mainly from these two states.
9: Now, how do the refugees cross the border to Ethiopia?
8: Well, you know that this crisis in South Sudan has a combination of conflict and also food insecurity. So they are arriving at very poor health conditions here in Ethiopia. A lot of malnourished children because they have to walk long distance on foot to reach Ethiopia. Some of the refugees that we have already interviewed here in Ethiopia talk about facing a journey of 2-3 weeks on food before arriving in Ethiopia. They don't have too many foods over the process. They are already facing food insecurity in their country, so they arrive here in Ethiopia in a very poor health condition.
9: Now, how is UNHCR helping the refugees?
8: Well. We, are, we set up here an emergency response operation, working with the government of Ethiopia and with other UN agencies as well as international NGOs to provide several services for these refugees. So when they cross the border, they are received at the entry point, and after being initially registered, they are identified and have some services at the border. For example, health services, nutrition programs, and other vaccinations. All of these services are provided at the border point for those that are in need of these services. After waiting at this border point, they are being transferred to the camps where they receive better sheltering and other services that are carried out in the camp. It's important to mention that the services are not only provided by UNHCR but also by other UN agencies. For example, WFP that is providing. Food, UNICEF and other counterparts and international NGOs that work with UNHR in the camps providing the services.
9: Do you have enough supplies to help the refugees?
8: Well, in terms of supply, we are finalizing a warehouse here in the Gambella town that will be able to provide call relief items for up to 50,000 refugees. It's a huge stock. And we are continuously receiving more materials from other UNHCR stocks around the world. Yesterday, we started to operate airlifts that are bringing emergency tents to the Gambela region uh, to add to the tents that we already have here in Newstock that can benefit uh, more than 20,000 refugees. Of course, that uh, the needs are much bigger than the capacity of delivery, so UNHCR is also trying to raise funds with partners to better deliver the services here in the Gambela region.
9: And I understand that the UNHCR is concerned about the rainy season that is approaching.
8: Well, to face the rainy season, UNHCR is announcing to relocate refugees to higher grounds because the first land granted by the government proved to be water-prone areas. So we are identifying new land. There has already been given to NHR by the government, and we are moving refugees from these water-prone areas to higher grounds so they will be not affected by the rainy season that is approaching. Other camps that have been constructed or extended are also being done, the work is also being done in higher ground in waterproof areas in order to avoid problems that are coming with the rain season. Some rain has already started, but we expect the beginning of the rain season by May. So we have to move quickly on this in order to preserve and better guarantee the conditions of life of these refugees that are arriving here in Ethiopia.
0: That was UNHCR spokesperson Louis-Fernando Godinho talking to UN Radio's Derek Mbata. It's 8.15 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now today in 1999 Abdelaziz Bouteflika, favoured by the powerful military, wins the presidency of Algeria. His opponents, who withdrew to protest voter fraud, call the election a sham.
3: Africa Rise and Shine Africa Surda, África, Amuka, Na Ungar
0: Zimbabwe's opposition party and the ZANU-PF government appear to be headed on a collision cause. The Movement for Democratic Change has announced plans to mobilize its supporters in mass demonstrations against longtime ruler Robert Mugabe's party. It says it will protest against ZANU-PF's poor governance, failing to deal with corruption and failing to halt the economic slide. Police on Tuesday summoned an MDC member for questioning over his utterances at a rally allegedly urging supporters to prepare for war
10: against Mugabe's regime. Shingai Nyoka reports. Job Sikala arrived at the police station Tuesday morning for questioning.
9: Ah, nothing. My lawyer has spoken almost everything.
10: But over the weekend, fighting talk from the former youth leader who recently rejoined the movement for democratic change. He promised a wave of street protests against the PF government, allegedly calling on supporters to prepare to liberate the country. Sikala's lawyer, Obert Gutu, accompanied him to the police station.
3: Uh, we, we are obviously concerned that uh, all they want to do is to instill fear in the People and to make them feel that you should not ever think or contemplate demonstrating. This is not boardroom talk. This is a political rally talk. As far as we are concerned, no law was uh, was was breached.
10: Sikala was later released without charge after giving a statement. Since its disputed landslide election win last year, the ZANU-PF government has been plagued by challenges, including corruption, a failing economy that's forced a series of company closures, putting employees out on the street. The MDC is eager to capitalize on the discontent. It's planning nationwide protests, actions that are likely to bring it into direct conflict with the state. It insists the marches will be peaceful. Party spokesman Douglas Monzora. We will exercise our rights in terms of the law, and we are entitled
6: to express displeasure. If then somebody stands in our way, then that is their choice. We know they will try to use this as an excuse to crack down on people this is not new for this government but we just have to do it zimbabweans don't have to sit down and let the economy
10: collapse. We are not saying the government must go out of power. Zanupiev has warned against recklessness. In a telephone interview, party spokesman Rugare Gumbo has said the MDC will protest at their own peril, saying they should not cry foul when the security forces take measures to stop them. He urged the MDC to act like the opposition, instead work through parliament to assist the government to resolve the challenges. Barely eight months after leaving the unity government, the MDC appears to be returning to its old strategies of direct confrontation. But times have changed, and despite signs that ordinary people are listless, it remains to be seen whether these strategies will resonate. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare, Zimbabwe. Today
0: in 1981, Bishop Desmond Tutu of the Anglican Church is arrested by the South African government, and his passport is confiscated, barring him from travelling overseas.
7: Bishop Tutu's entry into the arrivals hall of the airport was greeted by enthusiasm from about 200 singing supporters and a concerted rush by the ladies and gentlemen of the Third Estate. After greeting everyone, the bishop held an impromptu press conference with Radio Today's Dennis O'Donnell in attendance.
6: I have taken my passport before and I am just glad with my wife to be back here to continue our work for peace and justice and for a new South Africa. And we are deeply thrilled
5: and wish to thank all the people who are here. You Do not think some of your statements
6: overseas were particularly antagonistic towards the South African government? I have said them uh, even in South Africa. I have said nothing abroad which I have not said inside the country. And I am not seeking to taunt anybody. I have kept saying I am committed to peaceful change. And the reason I left was in order to go on what I call a mission for justice and peace. And that is what I still intend to do when I am here.
0: That was Bishop Desmond Tutu of the Anglican Church addressing the media on this day in 1981. India's Supreme Court has recognised the country's long-term marginalised transgender community as a third gender in a landmark judgement lauded by human rights groups. There are hundreds of thousands of transgenders in India, say activists, but because they are not legally recognised, they are orchestrated, discriminated against, abused and often forced into prostitution. A person who is transgender does not identify with the gender stated on the birth certificate. So our question this morning is, will this ruling contribute towards improving conditions for transgender people worldwide? Email us on info at channelafrica.org, sms us plus or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In our weekly look at activities happening around the build-up to South Africa's national elections on May the 7th, we look at a controversial campaign spearheaded by former Intelligence Minister Ronnie Casseroles and former Deputy Health Minister Nozizwe Majala Rutledge that's calling on voters to come out and vote by either spoiling their ballots or voting tactically in protests against corruption and current government policies. The campaign was launched yesterday Today, during a press conference at the Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg, Celine Ndobong reports.
11: Many are struggle veterans, and most of the signatories to this campaign have supported the African National Congress throughout the years since the 1994 transition but are appealing to the wider range of disillusioned voters. The Vote No campaign promoted by Kastrels and Madlala Rutledge is seeking to tap into a growing group of ANC supporters who have little connection with opposition parties but feel the political leadership has become complacent. The campaign urges voters to either spoil their vote by writing a no across the ballot paper or vote for smaller parties the ANC has lambasted this move saying the campaign is an insult to the work done by electoral authorities to strengthen democracy since the end of white majority rule 20 years ago Ronnie Castro's, however says the public needs to understand what this is all about
7: we're no longer a national liberation movement the ANC might pretend it's that but, you know, it's political parties who engage in elections for government office. they another political party. And, of course, they've had one tremendous record up until quite recently. So, in this respect, when we enter an election, when we are dealing with national issues... Whether we in the ANC or the Communist Party or Kusatu, let's enter the public debate. Let's listen to what our people are talking about. Let's not be in denial with our rose tinted spectacles that can easily talk away the abomination of the palace built in KwaZulu-Natal for number one or the shooting down of miners so disgustingly at Marikana, of a police force utterly out of control that goes on and on shooting down protesters and demonstrators. And I say to my colleagues and comrades, what did Mandela say when we were coming to power? He said, if we don't deliver, and solve the problems of the people then they have the right to march against us well 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 indeed what has become of the state of South Africa
11: former Deputy Health Minister Nozizwe Madlala Rutledge says the spoiling of votes is a valid and recognized way of exercising one's democratic right
6: in fact when we look at the figures over 680 South African voters spoiled their ballots in the, last, in the 2011 local government election. They were not at all feeling insulted. They were expressing themselves. This is a recognized form of political expression. If you go to India, you can write across your ballot paper none of the above. Because what do you actually do? What do you expect people to do if none of the registered parties really stand for what they stand for so as we go forward this is one thing that we aim to do to educate our people that this is a valid form of expression
11: Veteran journalist and political analyst Alistair Sparks warned Gasrills and those supporting this campaign that the spoiling of ballot paper will not have any impact on the outcome of the election. He says all it will do is to lower the overall voter percentage. He urged them to take a different direction with this campaign. It will
8: not change the percentage allocations to any party, the ANC to whom you want to send, who is yours. Britain think a strong message, and you said shake them up, will not be shaken at all. It will make absolutely no difference to their majority. In fact, if you talk to the posters, they will suggest that a lower overall percentage poll will aid the incumbent government. If you really want to send your message, do it properly.
11: There's been increasing speculation that Ronnie Gassarils is paving way for forming a political party. Laurie Colvin, who's in the organizing committee of the campaign, has however refuted those claims. This is not about launching a political party at all. And some of
10: us were actually looking forward to going into retirement. But we find ourselves back in the trenches, most of us on the streets again because of where we're at. So we ask you to
11: join us in that. A disgruntled member of the ANC, Jerry Topanim says he's in full support of this campaign, saying the party has become a party of a few self-seeking individuals and that that has to be put to an end. I'm
6: supporting the no-vote campaign because, personally, I don't know which party I'm going to vote for on the 7th. I will decide on the 7th. I've been giving my vote to the ANC all alone. But now the direction in which uh, the ANC has been taking now, it's like a blank check, you know, with proportional representation. I vote the ANC, and they go there in their corners. They bring corrupt people like Becky So it's really dangerous now to vote for the ANC because it's a blank check. So that's why now I'm worried. Uh, that's why I'm here. I came here to be part of the people who want to start talking and speaking out so that maybe the NC maybe will listen to us. I believe they will listen to us maybe and and that they will change their ways. Mm -hmm. I take this as as a second struggle. I want my people to benefit equally. Like the Freedom Charter says, the wealth of the country shall be shared among its own people. But what's happening now is that the wealth of the country is shared by people who have blind loyalty to the ANC. So I want an ANC of all the people.
11: A list of supporters of this campaign, including veteran political icons, has been made public. Madlala Rutledge says there's also active members of the ruling party who do not want to be named that are supporting the cause. A website has been launched wherein members of the public get to add their names to support the campaign. They say they expect thousands of like-minded citizens to heed this call. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selinan Ntobong in Johannesburg. Meanwhile, South African President Jacob Zuma says he has
0: been taken aback by the no-vote campaign advocated by the former intelligence minister, Ronnie Casseroles, speaking during their seat C- Siasola program in the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro in the Eastern Cape Province, Zuma said he was surprised that someone like Castrels can support such a disenfranchising campaign. Mzukisi Solani reports.
12: Ronnie Castro's campaign has irritated many of his former comrades, but for President Jacob Zuma, he'll seek an audience with the former intelligence minister. Castro's campaign seeks to encourage the public to either vote for smaller political parties or spoil the ballot during the May 7th general elections as part of protesting against the ANC-led government. President Zuma says he'll find time to engage with Castro's on this matter.
8: He himself fought for the right for people to vote and people have got the right to vote in any other way. It's a very funny view that he has. He was not just a comrade to me. He was a friend. But I think over the years, he has drifted to some world I don't understand. Maybe at some point I will have an opportunity to meet him and engage him. He knows I can engage. I know he can engage as well.
12: Meanwhile, President Zuma brought a high-powered delegation of ministers to the Nelson Mandela Bay to check on service delivery progress and concerns raised by organized business. This is part of the Siashola program, which is government's outcome-based monitoring program in service delivery. The president says he is satisfied with the progress made in the bilateral discussions between government and organized business.
8: Two ministers had taken initiative earlier that already worked with with the municipalities and the council on a number of issues. And therefore, there was also progress report given.
12: Zuma's visit comes after he received a delegation of the Nelson Mandela Bay Business Chamber in Pretoria late last month. The chamber was concerned with high costs of doing business in the Nelson Mandela Bay Business Chamber President Mandla Madwaha. Really for us, we have no um, hidden agenda except that uh, we want to make sure that the ailing infrastructure is attended to. Uh, issues of corruption are attended to the investment environment is conducive and really clear separation of political and administrative duties. The president ended his visit with a report back session to the community at New Brighton. His visit raised some expectations in the community of Silvertown informal settlement in Port Elizabeth Kwazakele Township, declared the worst place to live in the country by the 2011 Stats SA Census Report. Community leader, Zuki Suwama so If we can
13: have a chance to talk with the president, we want to ask him. The municipality must build the houses first. Here at MNZOZATAM um, we've got a big problem that made the development not to be quick. People as we don't want to take these shack and build another shack. They want to be removed here from the shack.
12: To houses. It's hoped that the frank discussions between business and government will lead to better governance at the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. I am Zuki Solani in Port Elizabeth.
0: Headlines up next with Anne Musa.
1: Good morning. Burundi's government has demanded that the United Nations provide evidence or apologize after an alleged UN report claimed it was arming young supporters. Suspected Islamist insurgents have abducted more than 100 female students in a night raid on a government secondary school in Nigeria's northeast Borno state. And a court in Egypt has banned members of the Muslim Brotherhood movement from running in the upcoming elections. Those are the stories making headlines.
0: Thank you, Anne. The murder accused, Oscar Pistorius, second expert witness, will continue with his testimony in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria today. After seven grueling and emotional days in the witness box, Pistorius yesterday was accused by the court as a witness. Forensic expert Roger Dixon is now taking the stand and fighting for Pistorius' freedom. Pastorius is charged with the murder of his girlfriend Riva Steenkamp. In February last year, he pleaded not guilty to the charge. Lila Magnus reports.
14: Forensic expert Roger Dixon will continue to put alternative versions to court on how Oscar Pistorius broke down the locked toilet door and how injuries on Riva Steenkamp was caused. He already testified that the injuries to her back was caused when she fell on the magazine rack in the toilet. He says the state's version that it was caused by a ricocheting bullet is very unlikely. Dixon told the court he did sound tests on a maranti door that is similar to the toilet door. Root told the state witnesses that when Pistorius broke down the door, it sounded like gunshots. Dixon put the recording device at 60 metres from the door.
2: What was the first sound? Let me just play the first sound again.
15: The first three blows of the cricket bat were done to test the levels of the sound, and then I did four in rapid succession.
14: Dixon further testified that the chalk shoe print on the door is proof that the scene was not preserved by the police.
15: It's, in my experience at crime scenes, it's unfortunate. People walk all over the place. But uh, what it's done here is actually gone on top of the bullet holes. So any uh, um, evidence that would have been sticking around the bullet holes is compromised. I'm not saying it's gone. I'm not saying anything, it's just compromise, not in the pristine position uh, or the pristine state which you would want to examine it.
14: Before Dixon was called to testify, state advocate Gary finalised his cross-examination of Pistorius.
8: I say on the, circumstan- on, on the objective facts and circumstantial evidence, I'm putting it as, as strong as this, the court will, Mr Pistorius, as the only reasonable inference, make the following findings. Okay. If I ate within two hours of you having shot and killed her. That whilst awake eating, that is the argument that Mrs. Van Amarva heard. Putting to you that Johnson, Berger, and both steps
15: heard Riva's blood-curdling screams, not yours. That
8: they heard that when she escaped from you. You shot four shots through that door whilst knowing that you were standing behind the door. She was locked into the bathroom and you armed yourself with it sole purpose of shooting and killing her.
14: After that, Pistorius's advocate, Barry Rue, had the opportunity to clear up certain aspects that came up during cross-examination. He asked Pistorius to read out the Valentine's card Steenkamp bought for him before she was killed.
2: The envelope says Aussie with, with some hearts and a squiggle, and then it says on the front of the card, roses are red, violets are blue, And then on the inside, she wrote the date on the left. And then on the right, she says, I think today is a good day to tell you that. And then it says, I love you.
14: Pistorius' sister, Amy, cried with relief when her brother was excused as a witness. After that, Pistorius became emotional as Dixon was testifying about Steenkamp's injuries. His brother, Carl, threw a tissue pack over the public gallery bench to his brother. Dixon will continue with his testimony when the trial commence at half past nine this morning. Lela Magnus, Pretoria.
3: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, America, America.
0: The execution of an Iranian woman who who has reportedly been postponed following the intervention of the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Iran. Jabari Latifi was scheduled to be executed yesterday for the alleged murder of a former employee of the Iranian intelligence ministry. Jabari allegedly stabbed the intelligence officer in the shoulder in self-defense after he sexually forced himself upon her. The case has raised a number of legal concerns. Daniel Dickinson asked the special rapporteur Ahmed Shahid, what he knows about the state of execution
15: well I would like to listen to the government of Iran from the authorities to see what they had done with the appeal that I made yesterday and I haven't heard anything from them yet but in these circumstances no news can be good news
4: can you give me a little bit of background to this particular case Well, the
15: concerns I have raised uh, in the case of Rehana Jabari's sentence is that in the trial that preceded the sentence, due process standards weren't met, that they violated Iran's own laws as well as international standards with regard to fair trials. In particular, I'm referring to allegations that her confession was obtained under duress, that she was kept under a long period of solitary confinement, with allegations of mistreatment amounted to torture in that period, and also reports, credible reports that not all the evidence pertinent to the case, and especially germane to her defence, was considered in the trial process.
4: If the execution has indeed been postponed, what does this tell us about what the Iranian authorities are thinking at the moment?
15: There have been many cases when international authorities have spoken out, either in terms of confidential communications, as we normally do, or in public statements that they have taken notice of these statements and stated executions.
4: You appeal to the Iranian authorities to stay this execution. What effect do you think international pressure like this actually has?
15: People speaking for Miss Rahani Jabari would feel that when her case is spoken off publicly, then there is a greater chance that her rights would be respected than if she were not known.
4: This is just one case, but there are many... Many others in Iran. How concerned are you about that situation?
15: In my reports, you and I have spoken quite clearly about my concerns about widespread deficiencies in the application of rule of law, especially with regard to fair trial standards. I've spoken of widespread use of torture in extracting confessions.
4: What is the rate of executions in Iran at the moment?
15: Last calendar year, I counted almost 700 executions. That is the second highest in gross terms globally, but by far the highest per capita terms. We talk about about two executions a day, and that is a lot. And of course, in Iran's case, capital crimes include offences not normally carry a death penalty under international law.
4: And how many of those are women? How many of those 700 were women?
15: I cannot tell you to hand, but dozens of them were women.
0: That was Ahmed Shahid, UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Iran, talking to Daniel Dickinson. A new study published in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene has documented how private facilities in southern Africa are far less likely to provide oral rehydration therapy, or ORT, to young children. The large-scale study is reportedly the first ever of its kind of of child diarrhea treatment practices in this region. According to the World Health Organization, diarrheal diseases are the second leading cause of death in children under five, killing 700,000 young children annually in the world, with at least half of those deaths occurring in sub-Saharan Africa. For more on this, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Professor Niraj Sood, Director of Research at the Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health, Policy and Economics at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles.
16: What we did is we collected data from about 29 countries in Africa. So uh, people go to different households in both villages and cities in Africa, and they ask uh, mothers if uh, their child had an episode of diarrhea. And once those children are identified and the parents are asked where they sought care for, the, uh, for diarrhea and what type of treatments were received by the children, So we use these data from 29 different countries spanning about 10 years to look at whether private providers are more or less likely to provide ORT or oral rehydration therapy to children.
6: All right, so now to what extent can you blame the thousands of lives lost each year from um, diarrheal disease in the region to the stark difference in treatment between public and private clinics?
16: So I think we should kind of uh, proceed with caution. What the study shows is that children who get care uh, in private clinics are much less likely to receive oral rehydration therapy. And oral rehydration therapy is a cheap and effective way of preventing mortality from childhood diarrhea. But why that is happening is something that the study doesn't address. So, for example, there could be two reasons. One is what economists uh, like to call Uh, demand side factors, which is basically patients going to these clinics in private versus public clinics might be very different and that might be leading to these disparities in oral rehydration therapy. Or the other could be that the doctors are different. So if the doctors are different and for whatever motivation they are not providing oral rehydration therapy, then interventions have to be targeted to doctors. But if the patients are different, then maybe interventions such as patient education need to be targeted to households and patients. So I think the important thing is to try to find a solution here rather than to put blame on a particular party.
6: Maybe if you can explain to us how important oral rehydration therapy actually is.
16: So oral rehydration therapy is probably one of the most important uh, medical advances. As you mentioned earlier, the WHO says that Diarrheal, uh, diarrheal diseases are the second leading cause of childhood mortality and oral rehydration therapy has reduced that by about the mortality from diarrheal diseases by about 50%. And
0: That was Professor Nijar Sood, Director of Research at the Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Tabi Saluhoko with the Economics Update.
17: Thanks, Lulu. Several car dealerships in South Africa have seen a spike in new applications for vehicle finance as small consumers take advantage of the credit amnesty. From the beginning of this month, blacklisted consumers could see their names cleared, provided they have paid their debts in full. However, most car dealerships say the majority of the new applicants don't qualify as they have not yet settled their debts in full. The effect of last week's oil spill on the mangrove population at the Richards Bay Port in South Africa's guazu natal province will only be evident in the next eight months. Some 6,000 litres of oil leaked from a pipeline belonging to petroleum giant engine. Engine's environmental manager says it's about one hectare of port's mangroves was affected by the leak. She says... A long-term recovery strategy is being investigated to redevelop the affected areas.
15: We've seen some herons. We don't know if they are affected. We have heard that there is potentially one or two ducklings that some people saw covered with oil. I have not personally seen those. What is more crucial is the ones that is actually in the mangroves, and hence the importance of the mangroves. It's the ones that's more sedentary. We've had um, environmental consultants besides the mangrove specialists. They will be doing a study to look if there was indeed an effect on these, and if so, what effect.
17: South Africa's biggest city, Johannesburg, is the highest-ranking city in Africa, ranked 59th, but has fallen nine spots since 2008. Nevertheless, Johannesburg remains the second-highest-ranked African city on the AT Kearney Emerging Cities Outlook. This indicates that Johannesburg has the opportunity to quickly improve its ranking. Financial indicators at this hour. The US dollar trades at 1050, South African Rands, 862 Botswana pula's, 517 Zambian Gwachas. It's also trading at 0.59 to the British pound and at 0.72 to the Euro. Gold $1,299. Platinum $1,435 an hour. Brand crude $109.30 a barrel. Economics update.
0: Thank you, Tabi. So, Tami tomorrow is D-Day for that, Gordon Iggersand.
3: That has been intensified. SAFA so has issued a statement today that they are going ahead. So, it means now whatever that uh, the little hope that Gordon Iggersand will cling on, there is nothing. They are going ahead on Thursday. Everyone is waiting to see that report. Whether are those allegations... True or not, but remember, if they are true, it means that uh, Gordon Isesand might find himself in trouble for bringing the federation in disrepute. Hmm. You cannot ask players to go on strike and influence others to fake injuries. It can't be; it cannot be allowed, because the nation is waiting for Bafana Bafana to win. But you look at Bafana Bafana; they're not; they have not been performing very well. Hmm. So we'll see. It's coming up on Thursday.
0: Okay, give us the rest of your update.
3: Thanks for joining us. Let's start with Soka. The South African Football Association SAFA will release the Norman Arense Commission findings on Thursday regarding allegations made against Bafana coach Gordon Igesand. During the African Nations Championship 10 earlier this year, allegations were made against the Bafana coach that he tried to improperly influence players over bonuses as well as colluding with agents over player selections. Igesand has vehemently denied the claims but SAFA still ordered the matter to be investigated earlier this month. There are also reports in the media that Igesant will be replaced by Sheikh Mashaba in time for the friendly international against New Zealand and Australia. In netball, the much-anticipated Netball Premier League, the NPL, will finally kick off after months and months of delay due to lack of funding. The multi-million rand, five-year title sponsorship deal with the South African breweries was launched yesterday at the Monte Casino north of Johannesburg. It will be the first ever semi-professional netball league in Africa and will feature ten teams representing the nine provinces with Houghton contributing two teams. Here is SAB's Executive Director of Strategy and Business Support, Yolanda Cuba, with more details.
11: I'd like to put it to you and say South African Breweries is sponsoring a woman's sport. The South African Breweries has been a proud sponsor of sports in our country. In fact, it was the founding sponsor of the Premier Soccer League when the Premier Soccer League was formed.
3: Meanwhile, Netball South Africa president Mimi Tedwa couldn't contain her excitement after the launch.
10: Yes, I am over the moon, but uh, not totally over the moon. I think the hard work begins now, and uh, we are looking forward to it. We've been waiting for so long. Uh, most of the things uh, are in place. Like we've never stopped working uh, on the NPL, so it's just now just final touches. With uh, less than a month now before the first air uh, matches uh, kick off.
3: And now in boxing, boxing will be allocated five slots on the Ugandan team bound for the Commonwealth Games later this year. The Ugandan Boxing Federation, the UBF, has been conversing for bigger representation on the team. A boxing squad of 64 is currently undergoing intensive training. And in the nutshell, the five to represent Uganda will be selected from this pool. Ugandan Commonwealth Games official, Mr. Samson Opas, explains.
13: Uh, and, uh they, they come on there, we don't the score, they were uh, 50 at the first time after the national, uh, national Open, that's our national the biggest tournament, we had it in January, they picked the first 50, and uh, they trimmed it down, on, on the Sunday they trimmed it down to finish, you know, they had their first trial, so they trimmed it down to finish the box up, uh, and again they're going to do it tomorrow, there will be another trial, so after that, they will teach the boys who will go to the club, maybe around 16 or around 10 there.
3: Ask to identify which boxers realistically stand a chance of winning medals for Uganda. This is what Hopas had to say.
13: There are chances okay. well, down to, uh, go down to the... From middle way to the fourth military. But I see good channels in the light I was flying with light fly flying to feather that that's where we really stand a lot of chatters. Very quite a good player with young box. I mean given some good on channel. I think we some better change.
3: And finally with golf, twelve nations are in South Africa to win Africa's flagship team event. The 2014 Africa Zone Five Golf Tournament at the Devondale Golf and Wine Estate in the Western Cape Province. National pride take precedence as South Africa takes up its title defence in the 2014 Zone Five Golf Tournament. And South African Golf Association Executive Director Bruce Young explains.
13: Good dual purpose in that. A lot of the countries north of the Limpopo, for want of a better word, are very keen to have strong competition in South Africa. And we were introduced into Zone 6 again in 1995. And the countries such as Zambia, Maui, Kenya, Uganda, are delighted to have the opportunity to play against South Africa. And the roster of venues is by alphabetical order. And this is the second time or third time that South Africa have had the opportunity to host.
3: That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and back to Lulu Kabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorla. Africa, amuka na
6: unai.
0: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Police in Rwanda arrest four people for threatening state security and Zimbabwe's MDC party plans anti-government protest. The wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer of Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za, follow us on Twitter at ChannelAfrica1 or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two. Double three two five nine zero five, taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty-one meter band to southern Africa is Mayway with Nanan. <laughs>
12: To channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa we are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa first let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad
1: In the headlines, Burundi demands an apology from the United Nations. Suspected Islamist insurgents abduct more than 100 students in Nigeria's northeast Borno state. And UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon calls on the international community to support future development goals. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Burundi's government has demanded that the United Nations provide evidence or apologise after an alleged UN report claimed it was arming young supporters. This is a renewed concerns over political violence. Local media have been quoting from an alleged leaked internal UN report that sounded the alarm over allegations that members of the youth wing of Burundian President Pien Kurunziza's party were being armed and trained in weapon use. Vice President Prosper Bazombanza has accused the UN office in Burundi of releasing the report in bad taste. Suspected Islamist insurgents have abducted more than 100 female students in a night raid on a government secondary school in Nigeria's northeast Bono state. The attack comes after a blast killed more than 70 people in Abuja on Monday. The gunman is believed to be members of the Boko Haram Islamist group, which has attacked schools in the northeast before as part of the anti-government rebellion. Boko Haram militants are increasingly targeting civilians they accuse of collaborating with the army. A court in Egypt has banned members of the Muslim Brotherhood movement from running in the upcoming elections. A court in the Mediterranean city of Alexandria ordered Egyptian officials to bar any candidacy by the members or former members of the movement in presidential and parliamentary elections. In December last year, the Muslim Brotherhood was blacklisted by the country's military-installed government. Egypt is set to hold a presidential election on the 26th and 27th of next month, which is to be followed by Parliament elementary poles UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has called on the international community to support future development goals through a renewed global partnership. Ban is in Mexico attending the first meeting of the Global Partnership for Effective Development Cooperation. World leaders and civil society have gathered in Mexico City to work on the partnership which was created in Busan, South Korea three years ago. Ban says the stage is set for wider, deeper progress. And finally, independent forensic expert Roger Dixon will continue giving his evidence in chief when the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius resumes in the North Gauteng High Court in the capital, Pretoria. He's the defense's third witness out of an expected 17 witnesses. Advocate Barry Roux is leading his evidence. Jacques Stienkamp reports.
2: Dixon yesterday testified about several objects that were found on the crime scene where River Stenkamp was shot and killed. These included the toilet door, the cricket bat, and a bullet core that was found inside the bloody toilet bowl. Dixon also testified about how he tested the light conditions inside the athlete's bedroom and about a sound test he conducted using a cricket bat on the door. It's expected that he will testify today about the sound a pistol made and compare this to the sound of a cricket bat. It is, however, still unknown whether Dixon will also testify about Pistorius' alleged high-pitched screams that could make him sound like a woman.
1: Recapping the top stories, Burundi demands an apology from the United Nations, suspected Islamist insurgents abduct more than 100 students in Nigeria's northeast Bono State, and UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon calls on the international community to support future development goals.